Did you know that you can help us produce new seasons of our podcasts and audio series? At Studio Chenta, we just launched a new series of audiobooks based on our podcasts, and they're currently for sale. There are many titles available from romantic comedy to horror, true crime, communication and linguistics, food and lifestyle, migration stories, and much, much more. Available in Spanish, English, Italian, and French. Check out our full catalog at ochentestudio.com slash audiobooks. And find the titles on apps like Libro.fm, Apple Books, Google Play, Storytel, BookBeat, and on your favorite audiobook app. Thank you so much for supporting our work. Extreme sports can be a form of labor, and labor can be a form of extreme sports. Hi, this is Kiona. And this is Luis. And we're your hosts of How Not to Travel Podcast Season 3. Fasten your seatbelts and take your seat at the table. And this season, we're traveling around the world from our dinner table to see how cultural exchange contributed to some of the world's most famous foods. This week, energy drinks. Hey, just letting you know before we start today's episode that this one's actually made up of two recordings. We discovered that we wanted to expand on the topic a little more. That's why you'll hear a slightly different quality and tone in our voices. Anyway, on with the show. So, let's go all the way back to World War II Japan. During that time, food is scarce, inflation has tripled, and so the Bank of Japan starts printing money in order to try to keep up, right? Like, they're like, okay, let's flood the system with money. Yeah. And they just want to bring back their economy. So they're trying to save domestic industries so they don't have to rely on imports. Yeah. So they increase the production on everything. So people are hoarding food and there's nothing on the shelves. And you can't afford it because Japan just keeps printing money. So inflation goes up. So their answer to this whole problem was to flood the market with products. So what do you have to do to flood the market with products? What do you have to do? You have to make the products. Okay, yeah, of course. <laughs> Step so, one. Yeah, exactly. So you have to hire a whole bunch of people to make your products, right? Yeah, definitely. Which means increasing labor and hours. And unfortunately, you have to make them work a lot to match the demands of bringing an entire economy back. I, I think I can see where this is going, unfortunately. Which brings us to a pharmaceutical company named Taisho Pharmaceuticals produced a legal product called Lipovitin D, which was sold in mini bar sized bottles and marketed as an herbal energizing tonic. Okay. And this was given to truck drivers and factory workers who had to stay awake in order to bring Japan's economy back. So right there is the beginning of the history of Red Bull. It was made for truck drivers who were trying to bring Japan's economy back post-World War II. From Japan, some Japanese expats brought it to their factories in Thailand and gave it to their Thai factory workers. And it's from there that another pharmacist named Chaleo, who got his hands on it and adapted it to the Thai market, made it sweeter. Okay. But you know what really took it over the edge was slapping two Red Bulls on the bottle and renaming it to Krating Dang, or translated to English meaning Red Bull. He placed a symbol of the two bulls in the front of the Eternal Sun, which is actually the current logo of the Red Bull brand. And he puts these two Red Bulls all over the place. Mm -hmm. It's forever being attached to power, strength, energy, and fighting champions. Do you know 
What's the symbol there? Like what it's representing? So because Thai culture already had this really strong emotional attachment to bulls, it just blew up. Okay. So for you, Luis, what do you think of when you think of bulls? The bull is this sort of beast that you have to control somehow. I mean, of course, I think of like bullfighting and in Spain and Latin America. Of course, there's so much history tied to bulls, but also to like facing bulls as a beast to try to control or to try to survive somehow. Because there's also this ritual in Spain and this Spanish town where people like run away from them, right? Pamplona, I believe. Pamplona, yeah, exactly. It's called running with the bulls. I was actually in Pamplona um, a week before that happened. And I was like, I have to get out of here. Like there were so, so many people and like so many people were up for running with the bulls. And I was like, I need to leave this town now. I definitely don't want to run with any bulls. Yeah. Actually, bullfighting has a really big tie into Red Bull. Oh, really? In rural Thai culture, there is an ancient bullfighting tradition. Yeah. You see, in rural Thai life, life revolves around rice harvest. Okay. And in order to plant and harvest rice, Thai people use the water buffalo as a beast of burden in rice cultivation. Okay. So there's this deep respect for the buffalo, also known as a bull. Okay. So bullfighting or water buffalo fighting, it's just a game of strength where two bulls of the same height and weight charge at each other, lock horns until one of them runs away. Enter Dietrich, an Austrian salesman selling toothpaste. Toothpaste? Yes. So we're back at the pharmacy, maybe? Yes, exactly, (laughs) exactly. All of these people are pharmacists, which is crazy to me. Wow. So he comes on a business trip to Thailand and takes a cretine ding. And remember, that's the Asian version of Red Bull. Right, yeah. And he realizes it cures his jet lag by giving him the energy he needs to make it to the end of the day. Okay. And so he approached Chileo, the original Thai um, pharmacist, to see if he could set up a company in Austria to sell the drink abroad. Okay. Chileo as a Thai manufacturer and Dietrich as the European producer or, I guess, distributor. So, you know, the Asian version is sweet, but not carbonated. The Austrian version is sweet and carbonated. Okay. Dietrich ditches the medicine bottle, puts it in a platinum silver and blue aluminum can, and markets it as a beverage of choice in extreme sports. Oh, so that's where the current can design comes from. Yes. And they kind of both have the same idea, right? Like first in Muay Thai matches, also at bullfighting competitions. And here we have Dietrich putting it in extreme sports like skiing and F1. And I'm glad you brought up extreme sports because like I'm also thinking of like the origin of all of this, this first pharmaceutical in Japan, right? Extreme sports can be a form of labor and labor can be a form of extreme sports. Yes, (laughs) exactly. You know, we wouldn't have Red Bull if it wasn't for the Japanese post-war effort to keep up with production. Mm -hmm. Then it went to a Thai pharmacist making the drink sweet and marketing it using ancient bullfighting tradition and attaching it to the connotation of power and endurance. And then from there, like if the Austrian wouldn't have traveled to Thailand to sell his toothpaste or him adding carbonation and marketing as a beverage for extreme sports, like we just wouldn't have this drink. Did you know that energy drinks aren't really the drinks with the most, well, energy? Despite being popularly known for it, energy drinks aren't the most densely caffeinated beverage out there. Coffee has more, with about 95 milligrams of caffeine per cup, compared to 85 milligrams per cup for energy drinks. 
But the real king is Guaraná, a seed from a South American plant used to make drinks with up to 125 milligrams of caffeine per serving. Of course, this doesn't mean consuming energy drinks won't give you a boost. A can will usually contain 16 ounces, or 2 cups, which doubles the caffeine content to 170 milligrams. And they are also, of course, very high in sugars. So, Kiona, continuing our discussion on energy drinks, I also wanted to talk about one that I'm really fond of or that I find really fascinating. I want to talk about the wonderful world of an Amazonian energy substance that's been quite literally hyping us up for over a century by now, and it's Guarana. I have never heard of Guarana, never seen it. Guarana is not something that's like very obvious in a grocery store. If it's somewhere, it's in like in a very specific section of the supermarket, which is probably like the superfoods section where you can get like all of these vitamins and all that sort of thing. Mm, so for like the healthy people. Yeah, exactly. And it's usually sold as an extract, well, basically like a powder uh, mm -hmm. that you can sort of add to your drinks. That's how you usually see it, although you can also see it in several energy drinks as well. So the reason that Guarana is a very in-demand product, at least for certain people, is because it's a drink that gives you a lot of energy, basically. I guess that's why you would like find it in like the health section, because those people are all about fitness and gym and getting energy to like pump up your day or whatever. Exactly. But would it be like an energy drink, like how Red Bull is an energy drink or Monster? Like, is that how it's consumed? Yes. And that's the other area where you could probably find Guarana. It would be in certain energy drinks. As you mentioned, Monster is one of those energy drinks, mm -hmm. one of those brands that actually actually has Guarana in their formula. Another one is Rockstar. But like, what exactly is Guarana made of? Well, Guarana is a plant. It's native to the Brazilian Amazon. And it's a fruit, but it's best known for its seeds. So the seeds are approximately the same size as coffee beans, but they contain about twice as much caffeine in them. Twice as much as coffee? Basically, yes. Like It has a lot of, of caffeine, and so you get a lot more energy out of it. Something that's really interesting about Guarana is its appearance. What, what, what you say it looks like? It looks like somebody with trypophobia's worst nightmare. It looks like a whole bunch <laughs> of eyes staring at you, like it's like a sci-fi plant. The fruit itself has this like brownish, reddish exterior. And then there's a moment during its life cycle where it splits open. And so it has kind of like this white fleshy interior. And then on the inside of that, there's this black seed. So basically, the the red exterior, the white interior, and the black seed makes it look kind of like an eye. And then they sort of grow in like these hanging bunches, kind of like grapes. And so mm -hmm. it can be surprising and almost a little unsettling because it does kind of look like a bunch of open eyes just hanging out from a uh, from a vine. I just want to be taken back to like the first person who discovered it. Like, what did they think? What did they say? It all goes back to 
an indigenous people from the Brazilian Amazon. They're called the Satarema-Wé people, and they were the first to cultivate and domesticate this plant. Even though Guaraná is a fruit, it really isn't something that you can just pick up and bite into, you know, like an apple or, or something like that. There are different ways of consuming it, but most of them involve grinding it and mixing it into a drink. And the way we know that is because in 1669, there was this Jesuit priest from Luxembourg whose name is Johannes Philippus Bettendorf, and he was the first European to make contact with the Satarema people. Uh, so he's kind of like the one often credited with, quote unquote, discovering the Guarana for Europeans. How typical. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like what he did was write about it, basically. Um in his chronicles, he talked about how they would roast it very similar to coffee and like over this huge fire. Uh, and then they would grind them into a very fine powder and then immerse in hot water. So they make a sort of tea out of it. And then uh, this guy, Bettendorf, the, the Jesuit priest, then wrote that when they consumed this product, they could go basically a full day of hunting without eating or without really feeling any hunger. It gave them that much energy. This is a diet supplement. <laughs> yeah, it is. And in fact, it, it does actually have that use as well. Like it has been used as a sort of weight loss supplement. Even like back then, the indigenous people would use it also to cure fevers and headaches mm -hmm. and cramps. And then again, it would just give you so much energy. I also wanted to talk about a very interesting origin story of this Guarana fruit. I love origin stories. The Satarema where people have a legend that tells the origin of this fruit. There's a story of a couple from the tribe who wanted to have a child, but they hadn't been able to. So one day they asked the king of their gods, whose name is Tupa, to help them have a child. And because this god knew that they were a good and kind couple, he decided to grant them their wish. And so they did. They had this beautiful child. However, there was this other god, the god of darkness, whose name was Jurupari. And this god basically became envious of the child's peace and blissfulness. So one day, when the child went out to collect fruit, this god transformed into a venomous snake and bit him killing him. Oh, and so the tragic news spread all over the community. And as the fate of the child was discovered, the village was suddenly surrounded by lightning and loud thunder. And then the boy's mother understood this phenomenon to be a message from Tupa, from the king of the gods, who told her that she must plant the eyes of the child in the ground. And that would yield a new plant that would then give them this delicious fruit. And that is the story of why, first of all, Guarana has this distinctive eye shape and also why it's so precious and so valuable to this people. In Hawaii, we have like a similar uh, origin story for the kalo or taro root in that like mm. it, was a, it was a mother and a father who had a baby and the baby was stillbirth and mm. they planted the stillbirth baby into the ground and out sprouted the taro root so oh, wow. and that taro root is actually like the base carbohydrate for all of hawaii which we talked about in our hawaiian pizza episode right, yeah. but 
it actually like instills life ways into people. So the Hawaiian people believe like when you take care of the tarot, when you take care of your brother, yeah, uh, your brother takes care of you. And because your brother is the tarot or the land or the carbohydrate, like when you feed it, take care of it, like it then in turn feeds you and takes care of you. Now that I think of it, like it's it's fascinating to see how when a crop, a plant is so valuable to a community, they have these stories that are a form of sacrifice even that made that plant exist. I feel like in this case, like something died in order for something to grow. Yeah. And I think those are like really excellent, like life lessons kind of planted into like origin stories that I just, I frequently find so much value in mythology more than mm-hmm. it's just a story. It's like a whole philosophy or life way. Did you know that caffeine is actually supposed to be deadly? Well, not to us at least, but certainly to insects. Caffeine, of course, occurs naturally in many different plants, such as coffee, tea, yerba mate, guarana, cacao, and cola nuts. But have you ever wondered why all these plants have that chemical in the first place? Well, it's as a natural pesticide for protection against predator insects. It actually reminds me of capsaicin, the substance that makes chili peppers hot, and that basically deters most animals from consuming them. So I think it's pretty fascinating to know that we humans have learned to love things that are technically supposed to hurt us. It wasn't really until the beginning of the 20th century, until 1905, that a Brazilian doctor eventually developed a processing technique that turned the fruit into this super strong extract that could basically be the base flavor of a beverage. And so this takes us to what is perhaps one of, if not the most famous beverage in Brazil, which is Guaraná Antártica. Oh man. So that's the first thing I'm trying whenever I get to Brazil. I've never been. Yeah. Please try it because it's delicious. And their story actually kind of reminds me of our Tabasco episode. Mm. Now, Guaraná Antarctica isn't quite as old as Tabasco, which, of course, you'll, you'll remember was founded in 1868, so that's over 150 years old. But Antarctica is still pretty old. The soft drink actually appeared in 1921, so it is now nearly 102 years old. So it's, it's a pretty good run. Yeah. And it actually developed as a way for the Brazilian Antarctica company that had previously only made beer to attempt to get into the soft drink industry. At least in the 1920s, their, their idea was that like beer is a drink for men. And so now we want to, you know, cater to women and children as well. And so that's why we want to to make this soft drink as well. I am a woman and I am a heavy beer drinker. (laughs) (laughs) But I imagine like back in the day, maybe it was taboo or something. In fact, it's interesting that the first version of this uh, drink was actually called Guarana Champagne, which is Mm. kind of ironic if you think about it, because of course, not only was it not champagne and not an alcoholic drink, but they were actually specifically trying to cater to what they assumed was a non-alcoholic drinking market, right? Mm. Maybe they wanted it to sound fancy and sort of emphasize the the bubbliness, the fizziness of the carbonated drink, right? right, right and also right. it sense. was in like this beautiful, like slim bottle that kind of evoked the idea of, of champagne. Mm, kind of like Tabasco, like you mentioned, which was like originated in the perfume bottles like we learned before. Exactly, yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned Tabasco because like there are actually 
more parallels to to the Tabasco story that we that we covered in that episode. Because another reason this reminds me so much of Tabasco is that this is one of those companies that really manages to keep such a strong brand identity for decades. There's a picture here of a, of a Guarana can. What would you say it, it looks like? It's green. That kind of looks like 7-Up, even with the red berries on it. It looks like cherries yes. to me. Basically, they have this like very kind of old-fashioned logo. The, the way it's written kind of evokes this like older handwriting cursive-ish, right? And then also the the color, the the green, it's like this very bright green, right? And it's actually very similar to the green on the Brazilian flag. And then also, just like Tabasco, as we mentioned in that episode, grows and processes its peppers on Avery Island in Louisiana, like they have that specific place. Guarana Antarctica also has something similar. They actually own a huge plot of land in the Amazon basin, actually not too far from where the original uh, cultivators of Guarana, the, the Satarema, where people live. And now this place, this plot of land has now become the world's largest Guarana gene bank. And so in addition to growing it there and producing it for their beverages, they also conduct research. So they're actually like finding ways to make the plants, you know, more resilient to to plagues and all sorts of things, finding different varieties. And so it's actually quite interesting that they have like this specific location. Yeah. It's like their headquarters. So yeah, Guaran Antarctica is Brazil's largest beverage, at least at least its largest soft drink. It kind of also reminds me of KFC a little, you know, like that super secret formula with the 11 herbs and spices. Well, Guaran Antarctica has something similar. They have like this top secret formula and they say that it's locked behind seven locks, that only two people in the whole world know what the formula is. And they even say that they're never allowed to be on the same airplane together. Oh my gosh. This is like <laughs> some top secret ingredient recipe here, like exactly. passed down through generations and like is written out in somebody's will, like you will yeah. be bestowed with the recipe of Guarana Antarctica. <laughs> I really love that they're so proud of this fruit that is like from Brazil and that this company is Brazilian. But since the indigenous peoples were the, I guess, founders of this plant and that they were the first to domesticate it, like, do they, like, are they working on the farm or like, what is their involvement? The indigenous people who originated the plant, the Satarema web people, aren't the only ones currently cultivating the plant Mm -hmm. and, and harvesting it and all of that. But they are still doing it, definitely. Not only are they still working on it and uh, and still producing it and selling it, but they also recently, according to a 2021 article in BBC Travel, they were actually awarded a Brazilian Appellation of Origin status, which officially recognizes that link between the product and its place of origin and the people that originated it. This is actually the first time that an indigenous Brazilian community has received this certification. And it's actually opened the door for the European Union to potentially grant it a similar sort of protected destination of origin, which is like great news for them. And also like, you know, partial, I don't know if you would call it ownership, but yeah, definitely. at least they have like some stake in the game. The good thing is that this is actually more than like a symbolic sort of mm-hmm. uh, acknowledgement or something like that. Like 
this sort of protection is actually actually has some legal benefits. Like I'm not an expert in exactly what it is, of course, but what I yeah. do know is that like it can potentially help them have more autonomy over mm-hmm. the use of their land, over their finances, over their uh, clients. And so the good thing is that they actually still produce and export this Warana to partners in over 22 countries, right? And so, That's so awesome. it's interesting. Yeah, like their production is small compared to the industrial scale productions of like Antarctica and other companies, but they are still doing it. Guarana is a, a substance that like is very Brazilian and it continues to be. And like, it's interesting that it hasn't really, you know, made a huge impact outside of Brazil. Like the places where it has is in these energy drinks, right? And how they have this Guarana extract that you use basically because it's this high energy substance. But it's interesting that there's like this whole origin story. There's this whole community who originated it and who brought it to the world the way we know it. Now I feel like I'm actually going to have to go down that aisle because I usually (laughs) skip it. (laughs) And that's it for this episode. If you're still hungry for more, stick around and listen to our other episodes this season. How Not to Travel is produced by Studio Ochenta and hosted by Dr. Kiona and me, Luis Lopez. Our executive producer is Lori Martinez. Production and sound design by me and Chiara Sandella. Our production coordinator is Catalina H. Vélez. And our social media manager is Sofia Rodríguez. You can follow us on Instagram at How Not to Travel Pod and at Ochenta Podcasts. You can also find us on Twitter at Ochenta Podcasts and on TikTok at Studio Ochenta. Read more about the show and about our other productions on our website, ochentastudio.com. Thanks for listening. Y buen provecho. <laughs> <laughs>